The following is an excerpt from the first Café Culture event, What Are Fairy Tales?, which is held as part of the UCL Festival of the Arts. First of all, we'll hear a talk by Mered Pugh Davis, Senior Lecturer in German at UCL, and then one by Tom Lundskaya-Nielsen, Senior Lecturer in Danish at UCL, both talking about how they approach fairy tales in their work. The speakers are introduced by Tim Matthews, Professor of French at UCL, who chaired the event. Now we've got Mary Pugh Davis, who's going to talk to us about her interest in fairy tales, and uh, she tells us it's a uh, link to issues of sex and violence, I'm delighted to say. So, uh, Mary, it's uh, over to you. Thank you. Differently from some of you, maybe, I don't have very strong memories of fairy tales in my childhood. My mother told me later that she wasn't keen on my sister and me reading fairy tales because they were sexist and it was all soppy princesses and needed to be rescued and whatnot, which is a very interesting perspective. I think that's something that we can talk about. But it is the case that for me fairy tales were something that I sort of discovered as a student in my courses. I studied German and of course the German fairy tale tradition is a very powerful one. And as a student, I was fascinated by what I saw as the subversive potential of fairy tales. They talk about the world not as it is, but as it could be. And I found that fascinating. I teach courses about fairy tale and I research them as an academic as well. And I believe that it's really important to do this because they're such fundamental parts of our culture and they reward us if we want to understand ourselves better and the stories that we tell about ourselves or to ourselves. I think it's very rewarding to understand these stories better, where they come from and what they might mean. Now, in my experience, if you ask people what are fairy tales, they come up with very typically with a group of some very cherished, some very highly prized ideas. And these are often the ones that come up. Fairy tales are nice, they're lovely, they're oral. Hannah's already mentioned that idea. They're for children, they have national characteristics. This is a big idea in German. They, offer, they all lived happily ever after, the happy ending. The moral compass, the idea that they're a kind of a, a moral beacon in uncertain times. And linked to that, the idea that they're timeless and universal, that they kind of, in the upheavals of the modern world, that it's something that's come down to us that has not changed. And these are all ideas which we value very strongly, I think, about fairy tale. So I'd like to take this talk as an opportunity to explore a couple of these ideas in a little bit more depth, using my favorite gruesome story, the story of Bluebeard. Bluebeard, the story of Bluebeard first comes to us in 1697 in the work of the French author Charles Perrault, and he is one of the best-known fairy tale writers. Now, in Perrault's version, a young woman is pressurised to marry a mysterious older man with a history of disappearing wives and a creepy blue beard. But he's rich, and so she decides that he's probably a very good man after all, and she agrees, and she marries him. And then Bluebeard announces he has to go away. And he gives his wife all the keys in the house. The keys are a really important motif, which Hannah, again, has already mentioned. We've got a key in one of the artefacts that we've got here to look at. So the key is a very important motif here. He gives her the, all the keys to the house and says, there you are, wife, help yourself, look round my home. All the rooms will be open to you. Spend all my treasure 
play with all my things, there's just one room you mustn't go into, and here's the key for it, bye. And of course, obviously, she has a look in the room. And what does she find in there but the murdered corpses of all the previous wives hanging up on the walls? Bluebeard, of course, comes right back and threatens to kill her as punishment for her nosiness. But fortunately, her brother, there we are, there's the cutlass and the threatening to kill. Fortunately, her brothers arrive and save her at the last minute. Kill Bluebeard, she inherits all his wealth and uses it to marry a good man who helps her forget the terrible time she had with Bluebeard. Now, I think this is a really important story because it gives us really important insights into marriage and ideas about relationships between men and women. So to come back to our checklist, you remember those ideas about are they, you know, are fairy tales lovely, are they oral stories and so on. Um, it's not lovely, is it? It's not nice. We can tick that one off. Fairy tales have a happy ending, they present a moral. That's an interesting one. Does this story really have a happy ending? What's the moral of this story? That's another difficult one. So I'm leaving you these questions to consider. But in the meantime, I'm going to look into a little bit more detail at one, which is, is this tale timeless, unchanging, universal? Or is it, in fact, historically precise, historically specific, changing all the time? The Bluebeard tale has been told again and again with different emphases. For example, the Brothers Grimm, who were interested in the early 19th century in promoting patriarchal family values, retell the story in 1812 so that the woman is blamed for her nosiness and it's really her fault and not because she was married to a serial killer. <laughs> Developing along these lines, there are tellings in the 19th century that reduce the violence even further and say, oh, it's just a figment of an overheated feminine imagination. But then again, the early 20th century sees the rise of a women's movement and in French, for example, Metterlanck's play Ariane and Bluebeard of 1899, made into an opera in 1907, has the heroine Ariane coming and trying to save all the previous wives who've been imprisoned. And we can understand that as a response to new ideas about women's emancipation at the turn of the century. By contrast, in Germany, there is a wave of writing that features very graphic violence against women, but I think we can interpret that in the same way as a response to changing ideas about gender roles. In the 20th century, of course, we've seen the rise of psychoanalysis, thinking about psychology as a key to understanding fairy tales. And authors often in the 20th century see the tale as a kind of a psychological drama, and the violence becomes psychological, not physical. Margaret Atwood's story, Bluebeard's Egg, is an example of this. Or authors may interpret it in the light of new ideas about gender. Angela Carter's story, The Bloody Chamber, has the heroine rescued not by her brothers, but by her mother, which makes a really interesting contrast to the feeble, useless mothers of many earlier tellings. And finally, I want to talk about a more contemporary example, which is the film The Silence of the Lambs, which I'm guessing that many of you have seen. I am going to summarise the plot quickly now, um, in case anyone doesn't know it. And so, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to know, lock your ears. In the film, there's a serial killer called Buffalo Bill on the loose, 
and he abducts and kills women, and bizarrely he removes parts of his skin. The FBI dispatch a trainee agent, Clarice Starling, to interview another serial killer who is now in prison in the hope that he can help with the Buffalo Bill case. This is Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins. He, he's known as Hannibal the Cannibal, and he used to eat his victims. He was also a brilliant psychiatrist, and it's hoped that he might be able to give clues from his practical and theoretical experience about the psychology of this particular serial killer. And it turns out that Lecter doesn't only understand Buffalo Bill, he actually knows him from his time in practice. He's a former patient of his. But Lecter doesn't give this knowledge up lightly. Clarice Starling has to extract this knowledge from him in a complex battle of wills because she's desperate to save Buffalo Bill's most recent victim, whom she believes to be still alive. Eventually she deduces it, she works it out from clues that Lecter gives her, and she confronts Buffalo Bill in his home, a great personal danger to herself. And she discovers that Bill longs to be a woman, and what he's doing with these pieces of skin is sewing them together to make a, a woman body suit. And in an absolutely terrifying sequence in the cellar of Buffalo Bill's house, Starling hunts him down and shoots him dead. And this seems to be the end of the film until we find out that Hannibal Lecter is still on the loose and eating people. Now, the Bluebeard tale is never mentioned in this film, but there are so many motifs which resonate here, aren't there? The display of female victims, the forbidden rooms, the serial killing, gender trouble. There's trouble here with gender identity. There's the last female victim who is daringly rescued. But most powerfully, most powerful is the theme of this forbidden room, and it's a real theme in the film, the way Starling forces her way into rooms where she's not meant to go, and she sees horrible images of violence. I'll show you a couple that they really are quite gory and violent, so look away if you think you might find them distressing, because I actually find them a bit creepy myself. So this, these are pictures in, in Starling's superior's office of the killings, these are things she find in a, finds in a storage unit belonging to Buffalo Bill, a mannequin without a head, for example. Here she is breaking into the cellar, and it's full of mannequins and dolls and really sort of creepy things that represent the female body. That's, oh, that's a bit dark. That's the last female victim whom she rescues. And I think that these echoes of the Bluebeard story are part of what makes this film so powerful because they contribute these subtextual resonances which we maybe don't even register consciously but they contribute a lot I think to the texture of our experience in this film. So I'll leave you with some of my questions. So if the Silence of the Lambs is the story of Bluebeard, is it the same as in the 17th century or not? Has it changed or not really? Can we account for these changes in historical terms or political terms? And to come back to the question of the happy ending, does it have a happy ending? And what is the moral of this story? Thanks, Mary. You know, lots of questions for us to you know, talk about around the glass of wine. And uh, what we'll do now is go on straight on and have a little bit of questions at the end. So now it's going to be uh, uh, Tom Lundsgaard Nielsen talking to us, in particular about uh, Hans Christian Andersen, and uh, he, uh, Tom, is a, a senior lecturer at the
Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Right, after this uh, gruesome interval, uh, try to sort of calm you down again. Um, I'm going to talk about Hans Christian Andersen in particular, partly because he was Danish, like me, um, but also because, as far as I can see, he introduced something new to the fairy tale genre that hadn't been there before, or certainly not been there to that extent. Now, um, if this works, um, you probably know Hans Christian Andersen as a fairy tale writer. How many here have not read a fairy tale by Andersen? Don't feel bad about it, you know, there's still time. <clears throat> Um, but I wanted to show you that um, he had actually done a lot of other things. Six novels, numerous plays, uh, volumes of poems, many travelogues, 12 volumes of diaries, uh, three autobiographies. No, <clears throat> he was very self-centered. Um, and many volumes of letters to um, sort of practically all the people who counted in not just in Denmark, but in Europe of, of the day, including Charles Dickens and others. Um, I have just made a very short list of, of some of the better known fairy tales, and uh, you can sort of <clears throat> feel very smug if you have read several of them and recognize the, the titles. Uh, they are chronological. Um, we also have, take that now, <coughs> some illustrations from some of them. Uh, we have um, Princess and the Bee. And these are the sort of original illustrations in the Danish editions of the fairy tales. Um, we have The Little Mermaid, which I'm sure quite a few of you have read. We have The Snow Queen, possibly his greatest achievement that. <clears throat> that is the, the start of it with the magic mirror which the trolls are carrying up to, to heaven <clears throat> to, uh, because what you see in it um, is the opposite of the truth. So uh, it, was, it was made by the devil obviously but then he splintered and uh, the splinters went into people and so on including some of the characters in it. We have the little match girl there, one of the sopier of his stories. <clears throat> and, uh, well, that's it for, for now. Uh, what have I done now? Yeah, no, if you can get the list of, of the markers, you can do that as well. Right, so um, in what ways did Andersen stand out from the fairy tale tradition? Well, first of all, he wrote his own fairy tales. Um, he was not the first to do that, but in the long tradition of the Italians from the 17th century, like Basile from Perrault, who was illustrated earlier, the Grimm's and so on, they're all collectors of fairy tales. 
they were so-called folk fairy tales. Um, not that they didn't change, because they did change in the versions. Even the Grimm's have seven uh, editions of them, and they, they kept changing them. <clears throat> but nevertheless, they were not original tales with a known author. Um, the German romantics of around 1800, they did write their own fairy tales. But they were not specifically for children. And as uh, Meriri illustrated with Bluebeard, uh, most of the folk fairy tales were not actually for children as such. Uh, it could be quite gruesome. <clears throat> um, so apart from writing his own fairy tales, Anderson changed them in three important ways that I'll just sort of briefly go through. Um, first, the language. Um, the language in fairy tales before Anderson was sort of more aimed at adults than at children. Anderson changes that. He makes it colloquial language. Language that will appeal to children. Children can have the stories read to them. They're not old enough to read them themselves. <clears throat> but this use of colloquial language is something he was very strongly criticized for certainly in Denmark at the time that he published his first tales. <clears throat> um, it was thought to be unesthetic. Uh, it's uh, wrong to, to use um, spoken language in a written fairy tale. You, you, you should do it so that people could learn from it. It should be educational. Um, the second dogma is what we might call the view of the child. I don't think it's too much to say that since Rousseau, Anderson was the first one really to not only write about children, but also to address children um, and to see the world from the child's point of view. Not always, but in some of his tales he certainly does that. And that was also seen to be something that you should avoid because children at the time should ideally not be heard, as we know, um, but they should be treated as small adults. There was no such thing as the age of children. It was something you had to get over as quickly as possible to get up to the adult world. <clears throat> the third dogma um, is what uh, Meririt was uh, touching on as, as well. <clears throat> the question of, is there a message, is there a moral in these stories? <clears throat> and when Anderson published his first um, volume of fairy tales, there were four of them, uh, beginning with the tinderbox and ending with Little Eater's Flowers, so, so from 1835, his first collection. Um, only it, uh, Little Eater's Flowers was an original tale. The three others were actually reworkings of, of fairy tales. But it was very important for Anderson. He said, I expressed them in the language as I would want to tell them to a child. Not to grown-ups, but to children. Um, I'll just briefly uh, illustrate uh, from the very first lines of the first fairy tale, the, the tinderbox. Uh, <clears throat> 
now I'm translating here. A soldier came marching along the road, left, right, left, right. He had his rucksack on his back and a sword by his side, for he had been to war and now he was going home. What's particularly appealing to a child there? It is, of course, he came marching along the road. Now we know what marching is like and so on, but for a child, left, right, left, right, that illustrates it. You have this, what we call unomatopoeic expression, that is, you <clears throat> imitate the sounds of, of what you, you hear. And that was something that Anderson used very much in his, his tales. Um, you have, I could give you countless examples of where he, he addresses children directly. Have you heard about this and that? At the beginning of um, The Little Mermaid, uh, he talks about the, the world under the water and uh, the fish there and say, and the fish are just like birds in the air. You don't say that to an adult, you say it to a child. And when he tries to describe how deep the sea is, he says that you could put many church towers on top of each other. Again, that is a child's perspective. Um, of course, not all his fairy tales were <coughs> about children, or for children indeed. Some of them decidedly not so. Um, if you take one sort of in the middle of his career, The Shadow from 1847, has anybody read that? Right. Um, it is sort of an anti-tale because the good man the one who writes about what is good, what is true, what is beautiful he becomes a victim and the baddie, which is his shadow that had detached himself from him he lives a life of blackmail and, and all sorts of dirty tricks he gets the princess at the end and the good man is decapitated. Um, so talking about morals, uh, moral right from the start uh, is not something Anderson bothered with particularly. In, in the tinderbox, the first story, the soldier meets a witch. He's only a witch because he's rather ugly and her lower lip hangs right down on her breast. <clears throat> Why does that make her a witch? Well, in the fairy tale world, she is a witch. And what does a soldier do um, when he meets her and she tells him, well, if you go down in this hollow tree, it's really a Aladdin story, uh, then you can get riches because down there there are boxes with big dogs sitting on them and, and so on. That's the whole story in its own right. <clears throat> and when he comes up with his pockets full of money and so on um, and brings the tinderbox which he asked him to do, Bring up. That's the only thing she wanted. He asked her, why do you want it? And she says, well, it's none of your business. Of course it is. Why do you want it? Oh, I've got your head off. No, I won't tell you. <laughs> off with her head. Is that moral? <laughs> I mean, people were shocked, you know, would this be something you could read to a child? And at the end of the story, the king and the queen are thrown up in the air. And the soldier marries the princess and becomes king. It's a palace revolution. And this takes place while there is 
the strictest type of censorship in Denmark. How is that possible? Because it's a fairy tale, of course. Nobody took any notice. Uh, so Anderson plays with, with all these things in his tales and in his themes. He uh, <coughs> takes up a lot. I mean, he wrote fairy tales for over 30 years. Um, some of them are about um, people reaching sort of the cusp of, of adulthood around 15 years old, like The Little Mermaid and, and several others, <coughs> and see how do they then um, go into the world and what happens to them. Um, others are unashamedly religious, talking about sort of what happens in afterlife. Um, others again, uh, especially towards the end of his career, approach what we might call modernistic tales, where there's sort of a tale within a tale, uh, in a way that you have to go to the 1950s to, to see in, in other writings, other post-modern uh, themes. Um, some of them have happy endings, but most don't. Maria really talked about, you know, do fairy tales have happy endings and so on. Well, Anderson's in most cases don't. Especially when it's a matter of uh, usually a man proposing to a woman and so on, then he is often rejected um, or there's some other reason why they can't get married. And if they do, it seems to be the most boring and sterile relationship you can think of. As in the... Um, the, the shepherdess um, and, and the chimney sweep which are of course China figures just standing next to each other on the table doing nothing um, <clears throat> so in many ways and I can't I'm going to talk a few hours but I have to concentrate this um, in many ways Anderson changes the whole genre of fairy tales and you might ask um, did he have any followers I can't say that he did. Nobody sort of in particular who would sort of copy Anderson in that way. Um, but I have sometimes wondered, would there have been a Lewis Carroll, would there have been an A.A. Milne writing in the way that they did if we hadn't had Anderson's fairy tale sort of as a, a kind of, of model and inspiration? I can't answer that, but uh, you can think about it. Leave that to us. Thank you so much. <laughs>